This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This has to do with what we were just talking to Gordon MacDonald about. Uh, some new research released today and it appears Canadians, we have a little trouble disconnecting from the internet. 85% of the people questioned say they have not gone off the grid for more than a week in the last year. I'm not really surprised by that. But you You might be surprised by how many people are taking their phones into the washroom, just under the halfway mark, under half of those questioned admitted to, yeah, they use their phones while in the washroom. So the hot question of the day in the report by Sira News, we are asking you, do you use your phone while using the washroom? Reply, tell us why or not. You can go to Twitter and say, yes, it passes the time, or no, that's disgusting. Vote now at CKNW. I'll retweet it. You can vote to at Jill Reports. You can also give the CKNW buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. Leave your vote there, and don't get too graphic. But if you do, why? Is it multitasking? Do you have to do that? Why do you make that choice? We're confident that people will be able to hail a ride through this new transportation network service by the end of the year. All right, that was NDP MLA Bowen Ma speaking yesterday, talking about the latest timeline for when people can expect to get ride hailing in BC. From September 3rd, companies will be able to apply to provide the service. And Bowen Ma said yesterday as well that the new regulations will require transportation network companies to pay a $5,000 annual license fee. And there will also be a 30 cent charge per ride on vehicles that don't have access for people with disabilities and for passengers with mobility issues. Uh, I don't think anyone takes issue with those uh, requirements that were announced, uh, that were clarified yesterday. Uh, We did hear from a spokesperson for the ride-hailing company Lyft uh, that uh, the regulations announced by the BC government could result in a lesser version of the service. And uh, that has to do with class, uh, the licensing uh, class. Uh, Keith Baldry was covering uh, this story as well. Uh, Take a listen to this. The big changes, the big rules come in the fall. That's setting boundaries, fares, fleet sizes and the like. But to get started, some little changes had to occur. So here's some of the rules that were announced. First of all, uh, no surprise here. Drivers, Uber drivers have to undergo criminal record checks and driving record checks. Uh, You don't have to have a spotless driving record, but you can have up to four uh, driving, no more than four driving infractions in which you occur points over a two-year period. So not spotless, but not certainly not uh, too bad as well. Also, as expected, a 30 cent per trip fee will be applied, not paid for by the passengers, but by the company to fund accessibility improvements to uh, vehicles uh, in ride-hailing uh, companies. And ICBC is still something to be worked out, but it will be based on kilometers driven by uh, that vehicle or that and that driver. So some of the changes announced today, one of the ones that was reaffirmed, though, was the need for drivers to have a class four license. All right, let's bring in Peter Millibar. He is a BC Liberals MLA. He was also on the all-party ride-sharing committee that made a number of recommendations to the Transportation Ministry. Peter Millibar, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so it seems that people are, are okay with what's been announced so far. We are still waiting for more details. But the one big issue is this idea of a Class 4 license. And even the committee that you were on uh, suggested that Class 5 would uh, be enough. So what do you say to the fact that it appears this uh, Class 4 is non-negotiable? 
Well, I, I guess not a surprise. Uh, it was very disappointing. The minister dismissed uh, that recommendation almost immediately. I, I don't think the report had even been released yet, and she was already basically saying uh, that's a no-go. Uh, and, you know, the committee, we looked uh, very long and hard at this. Where there was a lot of debate. We asked for more information from ICDC about accident rates with Class 4 and Class 5, and there was a lot of reasons why we opted to recommend Class 5. Um, you know, the reality is there was not a big safety difference when you look at passenger car uh uh, accident rates with class four drivers versus uh, class five when you look at uh, the requirements for class four and how long it can take how expensive it is to try to get a class four as well as uh, the medical checks that are required uh, regular medical checks uh, so let's clog up our healthcare system even more uh, by getting drivers to go in and have to start paying money to doctors to get more forms filled out on a regular basis and, and wait several months to get that done as well it's cumbersome it's a, it's a 1950 style of licensing that does not fit a 2020 uh, um, app-based uh, transportation network. Uh, Lyft has already said that uh, they're not sure they'll even apply because they don't work in any jurisdiction where a Class 4 is required. Uh, there are other places in, in Canada, I believe, that had Class 4 or in the process of changing it. Uh, I guess, can we look at this that at least we're moving forward on this and at least we might get ride hailing in BC and maybe then down the road we can lobby or try and get the Class 4 removed? Well, uh, you know, I don't think we'll actually see uh, a true ride hailing with with what this government is doing. Um, they have not. Um, they're clinging to try to uh, stay to a 1950s style uh, regulatory system uh, instead of modernizing the taxi regulations and and modernizing uh, with the ride hailing at the same time. Um, they're trying to make uh, the ride hailing app uh, fit into that 50s box. Uh, the fact there was no clarity yesterday about boundaries uh, or fleet size. Um, should be very concerning to people. Uh, this sounds like the government is planning on essentially putting a few more taxis out on the road and calling it a day. Uh, it's not good enough. It's part of a, a transportation continuum that's needed um, in all parts of the province. Kelowna, Kamloops, uh, Prince George, even smaller centres are all asking for something like this. Um, and uh, what we've seen from the government to this point uh, is not going to achieve that. Uh, there was a, a bit of clarification yesterday as well on the insurance model in that ICBC will be rolling that out and it is going to be based on a kilometre uh, pr- priced uh, system. Uh, was th- did the committee look at that? Because I think that's what's confusing to a lot of people as well, that if you become a driver for either Lyft or Uber or if there's another company, your insurance then it clicks in whenever you're working for the company when when you turn the app on and you're giving someone a ride but you're not paying that rate of insurance when you're not did the committee look at that because there seems to be still a lot of questions on how that would even work we didn't take too too big of a look at that um you know it wasn't really in our mandate but it's an insurance product that exists out there and so icbc my understanding was even back in 17 uh, could have been ready to roll out with this so it's uh, yet another delay from the government uh the key point to this is and i think it's been lost in all of this is that uh, the taxi industry themselves, uh, let's remember, the minister had a review going with the taxi industry. Our committee was formed and was told expressly not to talk to engage with the taxi industry um, because that was going to be dealt with separate and independent. We've seen zero modernization uh, coming forward from this government uh, towards the taxi industry as well. And, and that should be concerning. Uh, we're not sure if they will have access to that same insurance product so that when they have more of their fleet parked through uh, 
the weekdays waiting for those uh, weekend bar rushes and concert rushes um, that it's affordable for them to have a car parked and not be paying the same insurance rates that they're currently paying. Um, so we're not seeing relief uh, towards the taxi industry in terms of uh, trying to keep them competitive with the, with the new technologies that are coming on board. We're not seeing uh, the government embracing the new technology and zero um, real detail um, around boundaries and, and numbers. And that's critical to, to the ride-hailing apps and, and how they operate. Uh, boundaries being that if they open up to ride-hailing to allow, you can pick up and drop off wherever, then why not just open that up to the taxi industry? Which for a, a lot, from what we hear anecdotally, a lot of uh, taxis are doing that. And it's, uh, it's one of the, uh, don't talk about it, we know it's not supposed to be happening, but it is happening anyway, simply because there's a need for it. Uh, so so are, is your concern that there will be the similar boundary rules for ride-hailing that there currently are for taxis? Well, absolutely, and and that's what we don't know. I mean, for the minister to say that in six weeks' time, uh, the Passenger Transportation Board will have all these answers for us, apparently, um, and then two weeks after that, you can get your insurance and away you go. I mean, look how long it's taken the Passenger Transportation Board to approve the 500 cabs that were approved uh, uh, for Vancouver over the last uh, couple of years. I think they're still working through the list of 500. Um, and so how does anyone reasonably expect that these, uh, these companies and their drivers are going to be licensed through the PTB in a two-week time frame uh, between September 3rd and September 16th when the insurance is suddenly available? Uh, let alone, it takes about two months to get a Class 4 license. Uh, you then need to go in and get your, your medical renewals every couple of years. Um, this, this is causing nothing but delay in costs. And, and a hindrance to people that are trying to drive a passenger. How am I safe driving a passenger car with a Class 5 uh, and with passengers in it? And the second uh, I turn on my Uber app, I'm suddenly unsafe unless I have a Class 4. It, it totally does not uh, stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. Uh, would you say it's uh, what many have suggested, uh, this is simply the government doing what the taxi industry to placate the tra- taxi industry? I, I think, uh, frankly, with, with the government we have, this is the government uh, doing uh, what the NDP knows best, and that is uh, the government knows best, and uh, the government shall oversee and, and have their fingers in every aspect of things. And that's exactly what we're seeing delivered with this ride-hailing uh, rollout yesterday. Uh, again, the fact that there was almost no detail makes you wonder what, what, what exactly were they announcing. The minister has said all along that she feels September is the date, I would have assumed yesterday she would have had uh, some direction for, for the public and for these companies to know what boundaries were going to be in place, to know what fleet size they would be able to ramp up and start trying to hire for. Um, no one knows any of those answers yet. Um, and, and so what was yesterday's announcement about? All right, uh, we'll leave it there. I want to get to some calls uh, from our listeners. Peter Millibar, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Great, thank you. All right, Peter Millibar is a BC Liberal MLA. He was on the all-party committee that looked at ride-sharing. More now on a story uh, we brought you yesterday, and for the second time in three years, the RCMP uh, settled a class-action lawsuit dealing with sexual harassment. Once again, the dollar figure around $100 million. Lead counsel for the plaintiffs in this case, Angela Besflug, was on the show with us yesterday afternoon and talked about uh, the complainants, the women in this this particular case and how brave they were in coming forward. Historically, the RCMP was a workplace rife with gender-based harassment. It definitely is a changing organization now, uh, but I think for years, women had to endure unacceptable behavior, whether it was sexual comments or sexual touching. 
The latest settlement covers 41,000 women who were civilian employees with the force, similar to the $100 million settlement reached back in 2016 with female officers. And we'll still have to wait and see how many people come forward and make claims under that. It still needs official approval as well. But we will follow up on that coming up in the future weeks and months. Let's now, though, check in with former RCMP spokesperson Catherine Galliford. Catherine Galliford filed a lawsuit uh, claiming that multiple members of the force sexually harassed, assaulted, and intimidated her on several occasions. And she joins us now on the line. Uh, Catherine Galliford, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. What was your first reaction when you heard that another uh, case, uh, the civil case, had been settled uh, with the $100 million uh, figure? I was quite uh, shocked to hear that there was a second uh, class action with regard to the women um, because they thought the initial class action encompassed, encompassed all of the female employees of the RCMP, um, regardless of whatever job there was. Um, so I was somewhat surprised to hear that there was a second class action, but I'm also happy to hear that those cases have also been recognized. When you were experiencing the harassment and the assault, were you aware that civilian members, civilian female members of the force were also experiencing that? Oh, absolutely. That was uh, very common. Um, but I do know in the first class, class action, they did recognize um, civilian members with that, the rank, the title of civilian members. Now, having said that, there were many women who were working in the RCMP offices and buildings and different units um, on different contracts and as volunteers. So they weren't actually given the rank of civilian member. That's an actual rank in the RCMP. But they were civilians who were working for the RCMP. All right. Uh, do you do you think that, or do you agree with the statement? And when we were chatting with uh, Angela Besflug yesterday, she said she does believe that the culture is changing and that things are getting better at the RCMP. I know that you're now out of the force, but do you see that or do you hear that? Well, I, I still talk to a lot of people who have been working within the force for many, many um, decades now, and a lot of people who are just starting up their careers with the RCMP. And I guess it depends on who you talk to and where those people are. I've um, very briefly at one point spoken with Commissioner Lucky, and she has very high hopes for what she feels she can do to make positive changes within the RCMP. I've spoken to many young, up-and-coming young members who um, feel very positive about their futures in the RCMP. And, of course, I've spoken with many members who have 15 to 25, 30 years of service, and they are telling me that nothing has changed. So I think it depends on your experiences that you have within the RCMP, what you are seeing change, and what can be done better. Uh, do you think there's a change in being able to, to report it in that when, when this was happening to you from everything that I've read and seen, it seems like if you reported it, it made things worse. Uh, do you think that there is a shift now that reporting it actually leads to some kind of action? No, I'm only saying that because I have spoken with many people who are still terrified of going forward um, with regard to their complaints of harassment. And what they're choosing to do is not say anything to anybody 
or they are finding their own legal counsel who will help them. Hmm. Which, which is, I suppose, what we'll be looking at now, because in this latest case that was settled, there, there's now that opportunity for people to come forward, for women to come forward. But if there's still that fear, uh, then what's the point, really, in, in doing this if, if women are still afraid to come forward? There, there still is that fear, which is unfortunate. And what I've said in the past is that the one piece of the puzzle that's missing is accountability for the offenders. And until the victims and potential victims and witnesses to harassment start seeing the offender being held accountable, um, nothing will change. Uh, and, and we touched on that with the lawyer yesterday uh, with Angela Besflug, and she, she said the door is still open or the possibility is still there of, of criminal action and that this was a civil case, but there is the possibility of criminal action. Uh, do you think that, that this could help if somebody wanted to bring that forward? Oh, absolutely, 100%. That's one of the things, that's one of the pieces of the puzzle that has been missing in the past. Um, We aren't seeing criminal charges being laid where criminal charges should be laid. We would normally charge members of the general public for some of the things that happened to me and some of the things that have happened to some of my colleagues and friends. But that's part of what's missing is the criminal code charges are not being laid. And why is that, do you think? Um, because the SNP wants to keep it in-house. Um, they don't want their dirty laundry aired in public. Uh, traditionally, that has been part of the problem with the RCMP. They try too hard to be in, keep everything in-house. They want the public perception of the RCMP to be the pristine Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But now what's happening is that people are becoming more and more knowledgeable of their own rights and they're taking their best interests out of the RCMP and going to lawyers and they want to see criminal code charges laid because of what's happened to them. And, and you make an, an interesting point in that what was missing even yesterday while we were talking about this settlement was the perpetrators. And there was no mention of what has happened. Has there been discipline? Have there been dismissals? How has the RCMP dealt with this? Are, are you able to even, uh, judge, based on your case, put a number out there? Because one of the, the big questions, too, is how many perpetrators are we talking about? Is it Was it a few men doing this? Was it widespread throughout the force? So do we even have an idea on the number? No, and that's unfortunate because we don't. Um, because the perpetrators are generally transferred, or if they do have enough uh, time in to retire with full pension, they're gently asked to retire. Um, so, no, I don't think we have any idea of how many perpetrators are within the RCMP. And my concern is when one perpetrator gets away with one offense, how many more is that same individual, that perpetrator, going to get away with? Because is that person going to become a habitual perpetrator? Uh, there was a, a case just recently as well, and keeping in mind that this settlement goes back to, I think, was it 2006 or 2008? And with the talk of people uh, hoping that there has been a change in culture, or, or, or even some saying that there has been, uh, there was a case in 2017 of an officer in West Kelowna who was questioning a 17-year-old girl who was in care who said that she had been sexually assaulted. And uh, I don't know if you saw that case, but it, it made news because the, the video was released the questions were 
absolutely horrific what he was asking her about whether she enjoyed it or her sexual history. Uh, it was something that horrified so many people. That's happening in 2017. And, and the RCMP didn't even come out and say that that was wrong. They said they couldn't talk about it for privacy, uh, but didn't come out saying absolutely this was the wrong thing to do. If they can't even come out and say that was wrong, uh, what kind of faith do we have that they are going to, to change the culture and are, are going to come out and say it's wrong for our members to do this? Well, I personally don't have a lot of faith that they are going to change enough to start um, holding people accountable and being transparent. And they should have some, had someone who was willing to stand up to say the way that member uh, questioned that sexual assault victim was wrong. And here is what we're going to do now to um, reprimand that member. But this is the accountability factor that I've been talking about so often. It's missing. And that is the key component within the RCMP that's missing is holding these people accountable publicly for what they've done. And while we wait for that to happen, and hopefully it does happen, the money that has been announced in this latest settlement, the $100 million, um, women can, can apply to be compensated. Is there a, does compensation help? Is there, is there an amount of money that actually does help in a situation like this? No. Everyone I've talked to... Um, this has never been about the money. What this is about is having some kind of validation that if you ask any single one of those victims who are part of these two class action settlements, I have no doubt in my mind that they would tell you they want their day in court. They don't care about the money. They want their day in court. And I've heard many people call the money that is going toward the class action uh, victims, they're calling it hush money because the RCMP does not want the public to hear he had to injure. All right, we will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Catherine Galliford, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. All right. Catherine Galliford is former RCMP spokesperson. Uh, she was also uh, one of the leads in the previous uh, settlement uh, back in 2016. All right. Let's get an update now on some breaking news out of Winnipeg, where 46 people have been taken to hospital after a carbon monoxide leak at a hotel in that city. And Global News reporter Diana Foxalt joins us now with some more details. Uh, Diana, what can you tell us about what's happening? Well, I am on scene at the Super 8 Hotel on Portage that is in the west end of the city, just east of the perimeter highway. Um, now, 46 people were taken to hospital this morning, as you said, after that carbon monoxide leak. We're hearing from the fire paramedic chief that the call came in around 10.20 this morning. That forced the evacuation of all 52 hotel guests, as well as some staff and the one dog who was staying there. Um, 15 of those victims were taken to hospital in critical condition. Five were taken in unstable condition, and then 26 others were taken in stable condition. At least one staff member was also treated by paramedics. Uh, now, the ages of those brought to hospital range from children to the elderly. We don't know exact ages, but we are hearing that the two kids who were brought to hospital were taken in stable condition. Um, no one required any kind of intubation or resuscitation, but the concern, of course, was that the CO2 levels were very high. Um, the highest concentration of CO2 found in the hotel was 385 parts per million. Uh, typically, symptoms begin to take effect at around 70 parts per million, so stuff like vomiting, nausea, um, plenty of patients displaying concerning symptoms. Um, now, Manitoba 
Hydro is also on scene to help ventilate, but no word yet on when anyone will be allowed back inside. It doesn't sound like that's kind of going to happen anytime soon. Uh, as far as the scene, it has cleared up significantly over the past hour. When I got here around 12 o'clock, there were dozens and dozens of emergency vehicles. We had, I believe, 30 fire paramedic vehicles uh, taking this call over the cu- couple hours that it uh, occurred. And now traffic is kind of back up to normal. Um, but I spoke to the owner of the Super 8. He says the first responders did a great job acting fast and the staff were also very quick to get people out as soon as possible. Uh, and any idea where it came from or what caused the leak? We're being told, I believe it was the CO2 leak starting in the boiler room. They aren't saying exactly what caused it, to my knowledge. We haven't got that far. They're also not kind of speculating on how long it had been leaking for. Um, They want to allow Hydro to do more of a thorough investigation before making any statements to that end. Right. So it sounds like, though, if it got to the point that it was so uh, so concentrated and so many people fell ill, it sounds like they likely didn't have detectors in that hotel. Um, we are still looking into that. When I spoke to the hotel owner, he said everything was kind of up to snuff on that end. Um, but we are going to be learning more details. Uh, we are going to be hearing for, from the Winnipeg Health, Regional Health Authority a bit later as to the condition of the victims. But on the carbon monoxide detectors, I don't have a concrete answer for you just yet. All right. Well, thank you for checking in with us and bringing us the latest. Uh, I'll let you get back to it. But thanks again so much. Thank you. All right, that is Diana Foxell. She is a global news reporter and she is at that Super 8 hotel in Winnipeg. And again, 46 people taken to hospital, 15 of those patient, patients described as in critical condition, five not stable, and uh, everything from children uh, to the elderly, a uh, CO2 leak in the boiler room of that uh, hotel. We'll bring more details uh, as to the conditions of the people in that uh, hotel as we get them throughout the day. We're going to look at some health news and some uh, interesting new research that takes a look at the rates of coronary disease, coronary artery disease among people in BC, particularly young people in BC. And joining me in studio, Richard Myers, who is a Vancouver accountant, and you have a, a personal story to share. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. And Dr. Liam Brunham is a co-principal investigator with these results. Uh, Dr. Brunham, thank you for being here too. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with your story, Richard, because I think people will hear this, especially those in a similar age group, and be pretty frightened by what happened to you. So tell us what happened. Well, it was about this time last year. You know, it's uh, tax time for a lot of accountants. Well, it just ended, but, you know, we're still working some pretty long hours, and uh, I started having chest pains, and uh, I chalked it up to, to stress. Sure. Uh, extended for a couple of weeks and went to the doctor, and we ran numbers of tests, blood work, you know, uh, stress test, CT scan, and at the CT scan, they had identified that there was some obstructions in the arteries in my heart, and then we went for an angiogram, which is the gold standard, I understand, for testing that, and found it was a, a 95% blockage in one of my arteries. Hmm. So luckily, they were able to clear it up very quickly uh, at that point, but it took a while to really identify what was going on. And if you, from what I understand, they'd said to had you been older, uh, you might not have had the same outcome. Right, yeah, it was, um, there was definitely some extended testing happening because it was hard to believe that somebody my age could have heart disease. Um, And at the time, I didn't have a very good understanding of my family history. 
you know, we knew that there had been strokes and heart attacks, but not the extent and the ages. It was only after the fact that I found out that my grandfather had had a stroke at 39. Oh, wow. Hmm. And my father had a stroke at, at 49 as well. So you know some family history, but you don't really, it doesn't really click until something's happening to you. So. Uh, uh, Dr. Burnham, so hearing this story and looking at the research that has just been put out there, so coronary uh, cardiovascular disease is actually on the decline, but not in this age group, which is a bit frightening. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's stories like uh, Richard's that really prompted us to do this study because my colleagues and I had had noticed that we seemed to be seeing, um, you know, more patients that were presenting with significant heart disease at a young age. And so we really wanted to, to have a, a close look at the data um, to see what's happening in this population. And can we pinpoint why it is we're seeing in the, the young, first of all, we'll define young because everybody has a different uh, definition, but for the case, uh, for this study, so it's, is it men under 50 and women under 55? Exactly. So in that age group, why are we seeing it still being so prevalent? We don't know all the answers, but, um, you know, when you look at heart disease overall, um, rates have declined significantly over the last two decades. And we think that's due to better treatments, uh, lower rates of smoking. And yet in this group of young adults, uh, the rates have been totally stable. And so proportionally, you know, it's becoming a, a bigger issue. And what we saw that was particularly concerning in the study is that rates of important risk factors, things like high blood pressure, obesity um, and high blood and uh, diabetes were actually on the rise over this time period in these young adults. So that that seems to be at least part of the story in terms of why we're seeing more heart disease in, in young patients. And Richard mentioned that there is a history in his family. So how much of it is genetic uh, or how much of it is environment? So genetics is, is a huge part. We know that when someone develops heart disease at a young age, there's a very strong genetic component. And, and one of the important implications for that is that understanding family history is, is very important. Because if you have a family history of heart disease at a young age, it significantly increases your risk. And yet we don't really have good uh, methods for identifying patients that, that have these types of family histories. And, and that's really what we're working on now when we've set up a program, uh, which, which Richard is participating in, where we're actually trying to systematically identify people that have these types of family histories. And, and we can bring in the relatives, um, screen them, understand if they are at risk, and then hopefully take steps to, to reduce that risk. And uh, Richard, how has it changed your life as far as your outlook and even your family? I would imagine there are probably other people in your family who are now much more in tune with this or much more aware of the risks. Well, yeah, my, my sister had uh, a very similar incident two years before me. So again, there's that genetic side of things. Um, but now my, my family is going to be involved in the study as well. My children will be involved. And that's ultimately what's really important to all of us. But you know, we're, we're involved in the study, but we don't feel like we're, we're being inspected or anything like that. It's, it's, I feel like I've got access to more healthcare professionals, and that's the way they see it as well. It's, it's only a win-win for everybody involved. And because it was caught for you, like you said, you had this chest pain, you went to have the tests and 95% blockage. Do you make a full recovery from that, or is it something that you now have to be aware of or, or watch for? Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, the risk factors, there's, you know, sedentary lifestyle, there's high blood pressure. So I'm, you know, I'm on new medications for that type of thing, and I'm going to be monitoring it for the rest of my life. Um, but just knowing, you know, helps you get into a lifestyle where you can hopefully keep it under control. All right. And you mentioned your sister, which is interesting as well, because I'll go back to you, uh, Dr. Burnham. 
women, according to this study, women diagnosed with premature coronary disease, a greater risk of dying. Do we know why? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know why exactly. But that was really one of the surprising findings of the study is that uh, women in, in the population, if they did develop heart disease at a young age, they had about twice the chance that they were going to die. Uh, whether that's because women with heart disease are getting treated less aggressively or that the disease is actually different in women, we don't uh, understand. And that's really one of the things that we're working on now is try to delve deeper into uh, understanding some of those sex-based differences. Because would it be even something as simple as, say, a man like Richard comes in, and even at that age, it's unlikely, so probably, it's not the first thing a doctor would think of, even more so with a woman, it would be farther down the list on what a doctor would think of? Absolutely. And we know there's data that shows that, that women presenting uh, to the emergency department with chest pain are, are less likely to undergo um, definitive tests to to understand if, if there is a cardiac cause. And even in our study population, uh, women were less likely to undergo certain procedures to open up blocked blood vessels. So part of it is, is the recognition uh, and treatment, uh, but there may be other factors at play as well. So will a study like this help help us better diagnose or better prevent? Well, I think what this study tells us is that uh, heart disease in, in young patients is a, a very important issue. And I think this is uh, hopefully going to lead us to better ways to identify these patients that are at risk uh, so that we can we can start preventative therapy earlier in life and, and hopefully prevent uh, these events from occurring. Uh, because with the, the difference in the age groups, then, does it seem odd that there is such a disconnect and that we seem to be getting a good grip on it in the older age group, but again, seeing the increase in the younger age group? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that's really of interest to us is to, to understand what's going on and, and, and why um, why we're seeing these relatively high rates in, in young adults. And they don't seem to be um, enjoying the, the, the benefits of, of reducing uh, rates of cardiovascular disease that have been seen in the overall population. All right. And uh, Richard, I'll go back to you. Uh, not to stereotype men, but men, we've talked about health many times, and it's that see no evil, hear no evil. If I don't go to the doctor, I can't get diagnosed. There's nothing wrong with me. Uh, what would you say to men who maybe have symptoms or are living the lifestyle that is one that is connected with the coronary disease? Well, you know, I, I think like a lot of men my age, I had that, I still had that feeling of, of invincibility and that goes away real quick when you've been diagnosed with something. But knowing has, I mean, not only am I reducing the future risk factors now, and I've, I've largely taken care of an issue, but knowing what's out there has improved my life beyond just taking care of it. You know, I'm uh, more active, better diet, I feel better day to day. So you know, it might seem scary to get it taken care of or at least find out, but it's only going to improve your circumstances. Right. It's not something like uh, that fear of, oh, if I do this, I'm only going to eat lettuce for the rest of my life <laughs> and it's going to be awful. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, the, you know, a healthy heart diet is, is actually a pretty nice diet. <laughs> and and what do, do you see that as well? Kind of a reluctance or people afraid of, of, of even going down this road because afraid of what you might find? Yeah, I think once a patient has developed symptoms, I think they're they're often more motivated to to get attention. But we definitely see that is is that in in the the family members, the asymptomatic family members who maybe have a relative who's had heart disease at a young age, it can be very challenging to motivate them to come in and get checked out, even though we have excellent tools to you know look at the risk factors, look at their blood vessels, see if there's early evidence of, of buildup of plaque. Um, often um, what we see is people maybe just, just aren't ready for that information or aren't, maybe aren't ready to make changes to their life.
Is there a fear as well of the the um, tests themselves and that people think they're invasive or are they invasive? They're not invasive. No, we have non-invasive methods of looking at the blood vessels, doing different types of CT scans where we can actually visualize buildup of plaque or narrowing of, of, of arteries. So there's really no, um, you know, barriers in terms of, of there being, you know, discomfort or risk associated with the types of tests that we could offer. And can anyone do that? Not, not to suggest that people hearing this are now going to flood the hospitals to get these tests done. But if somebody is, has kind of been in the back of their mind and they think that, do you need to have a pre-existing condition or a family history to go and get the testing done? Well, not every test is appropriate for every patient. So it's right. very much dependent on, on the circumstances. I mean, the first step, I think, is that if you do have that type of family history that we've heard of, of, of you know, people in your family having a heart attack or stroke at a young age, make sure that your doctor knows. And, and, and the first step is to just have them do an assessment. Some some of the type of tests that are done are are um, um, more based in specialized centers, you know, like Vancouver uh, General Hospital or St. Paul's Hospital, where I work. Um, but but in general, these are things that are widely available in the province. All right. And Richard, what advice would you give if someone's listening and they can relate to where you were, perhaps not where you are now, but where you were, a bit of a sedentary lifestyle, maybe a family history? What advice would you give to that person? I would sit down with your family and have a frank discussion about the family history first off, because I didn't fully understand it until I was well along through the, the route of, of finding out what had happened. Um, but the sedentary lifestyle, the diet, you can get on that right away. And you find it improves so many other aspects of your life along the way. You feel so, better now? Absolutely. Yeah, in, in almost every regard. All right. And Dr. Brunham, uh, the study itself, so what the the one that Richard's involved in and what's happening now, are you still looking for more people or you've got everybody for that one? No, we're actively recruiting patients at Vancouver General Hospital and at St. Paul's Hospital. And actually, we're going to be uh, launching a new site at Kelowna General Hospital this fall. So our, our goal is to actually be fully provincial within the next couple of years. So that's something that's active and, and ongoing. Oh, that's great. And then where does that study go from there? How long will you actually be studying it or when do you hope to get results? Our goal is for it to really be longitudinal. So we want to study these these patients and their families for years, you know, people like Richard that are involved that has have young children. Uh, we want to, to follow him and his children over many, many years to really understand the, the potential benefits of identifying these types of families early, intervening and hopefully reducing risk. Uh, is it something that we tend to uh, focus on cancer? We focus on, on so many other things. Do, does heart disease or I mean, it's not the sexiest of the diseases. Does it kind of uh, not get the attention it needs? I, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, uh, you know, heart disease is still the number one killer of Canadians. And so it's, uh, but, but I think it's, it doesn't always um, have the same um, sort of visceral response as, as say cancer, or even sometimes things like diabetes. I find when I talk to my patients, they're more concerned about getting diabetes and having a heart attack. Um, so I, I think there, I think there is truth to that. And I think understanding that it's, that heart disease is not only something that occurs in your sixties or seventies, it can happen early in life is also important. All right. And just uh, one more, if somebody is hearing this and thinks they want to get involved in the study, what should they do? Well, the study is, 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 um, we are actively recruiting people. Okay. So it's, it's something that we have coordinators in the hospital identifying patients at risk. But what I would say is if, if you do have this type of family history, you know, first thing should be talk to your family doctor about it. 
All right. Well, thanks, both of you. And Richard, thank you for sharing your story and uh, hopefully inspiring people if they are in a similar position to to make some changes. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. That is Richard Myers. He's an accountant. He suffered a blockage in his uh, cardiac arteries. And Dr. Liam Brenham, who is a co-principal investigator of the results uh, involved in that study. We got a few details yesterday when it comes to ride hailing in BC. We are told it will be or could be up and running by September, although there are some that are questioning that. Some of the new regulations include requiring transportation network companies pay a $5,000 annual licensing fee, a charge of 30 cents per ride on vehicles that don't have, that aren't accessible for passengers with mobility issues, with disabilities. And the other one that is really getting a lot of attention, as we've been talking about it here and it's been on the news, is the need for a class four license. So let's bring in Aaron Zifkin. He is the Managing Director for Lyft in Canada. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Uh, What is your response to uh, the government saying they will not budge for ride-hailing in BC? Drivers must have Class 4. Well, we're really excited to bring true ride-sharing to BC, and uh, obviously this has been a long time coming for BC residents. And when I say true ride-sharing, what I mean by that is having reliable and affordable rides. And we know unequivocally, report after report after report, that the issue here in BC is around supply, making sure we've got enough cars at the right time in the right place. Having class four licenses introduced into BC is just going to be a blocker to that and not solve the problem that we all know is here. So will you even bother trying to bring Lyft to BC? We've been working for a long time now, several years, with all levels of government here to ensure that we've got a great regulatory environment. There was a great report that was put out with an all-party legislative committee uh, report several months ago that really did a great job of involving many stakeholders, both within the industry and outside the industry, and they put forward Class 5 licensing. And just as a point of context, this would be the only jurisdiction in all of North America that we operate in that would have a Class 4 licensing commercial uh, system in place. Right. So will you apply to operate in BC? We just got the regulations yesterday, and so we're going to take a little bit of time to digest them. Obviously, we want to look at the environment in totality. We also really want to work closely with the uh, Passenger Transportation Board to make sure we get it right. And when we say get it right, again, it all goes back to making sure that BC residents uh, have a world-class ride-sharing system in place. How much generally, because there's been a lot of talk as well, people saying that uh, people that that drive for ride-hailing services don't make uh, a livable wage, that they make a very small wage. What's the average? What would someone make if they're a Lyft driver? It it really depends. I think the really interesting part of our platform is that 91% of our drivers across North America drive for less than 20 hours a week. So it's really a great earning opportunity and a great opportunity to have supplemental income. Uh, you know, I had a great driver the other day taking me home from the airport. He was a retiree on fixed income, uh, and this was a great way for them to make some extra extra cash on the side. So what would you make, say, if you did 20 hours a week? It, it really varies. Our drivers have uh, earned over $15 billion on the platform. That number actually has increased 7% just in the last two years alone. Uh, but typically our drivers net out at, at over $20 an hour. Over $20 an hour. 
That's right. After okay. expenses. So, and, and now you make an interesting point. If the majority of drivers, 91%, are, are people that are, that are doing 20 hours a week or less, uh, do you think then it is a, a big block in that before even doing that, they would have to go through the motions of getting a class four license, which involves a, a test, a medical exam, uh, the medical exam repeats, I think, every couple of years. Uh, do you think that would be enough of a deterrent that a lot of those people aren't, if Lyft comes to BC, they're not going to apply? Yeah, absolutely. Again, we look at the time and the investment uh, to get a class four license. And again, the bigger question is, why do you need to have it? There's no statistical, um, uh, there are no stats that have been released uh, that will say that class four is any safer than class five. ICBC actually released those stats saying that there is no statistical significance. But I think the most important thing is, as you think about a, a, a BC resident here, and we've all had these experiences where, you know, the bars let out, restaurants let out, or a big hockey game is finished, and there's no available vehicle for you to get home. Um, when you look at the 91% of those occasional drivers, they tend to be driving during those hours where demand is at the highest. And so it's not just about the challenge of getting the Class 4 license. It's really about solving the real problem here, which we know is supply restrictions here. So we want to make sure that we've got the right cars in the right place. And those occasional drivers that we have on our platform, which won't really drive under a Class 4 licensing regime, won't be available. Uh, there's also a criticism sometimes, uh, people saying that it's happened in other jurisdictions. So when ride hailing is brought in, it increases traffic congestion. How do you respond to uh, those who'd say, who say actually they don't want it because it puts more vehicles on the roads? Well, I think congestion is obviously a, a very large problem. There's uh, and many factors, right? Rapid urbanization, people moving into the cities. But I think all you need to do is next time you're on your commute uh, into a city is look around and see how many cars have a single occupant in them. Really, the, the, bad, the challenge here is car ownership. And so when you start to think about some of the programs that we have with ride sharing, where people can share a ride, getting picked up from a similar destination and dropped off in a similar area, the multimodal approach by introducing bikes and scooters, and obviously our deep integration into different transit authorities, um, you start to really start to you know, eliminate some of those challenges. And we've been having some great conversations with uh, TransLink here and we're really excited about those type of partnerships. Uh, would you say for the most part, are Lyft drivers, drivers that are already on the road and they put the app on and make themselves available or do they go onto the road specifically to be a Lyft driver? Well, I think that's the, the beauty of the platform is the flexibility that it brings for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I had two, two great drivers in, uh, in Ottawa just last week uh, again, one driver was, uh, was a retiree on fixed income, and the other was a student who was studying to be a civil engineer. Uh, and this was a great way for him to make some supplemental income and pay his way through school. And you hear all those stories you know, all the time. And, uh, and again, it's really all about the flexibility and the earning opportunities that they provide. Uh, we're still waiting for more details in BC, uh, particularly when it comes to boundaries, if there will be boundaries on where uh, ride-hailing drivers can go, and also the insurance model, what that's going to cost, and if there's going to be a cap on vehicles. Uh, do you need to wait for that before you decide or before Lyft decides if it will come to BC or not? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is what we're looking forward to is, again, engaging with the Passenger Transportation Board to really understand the opportunities that ride sharing brings to a city. We now you know, are literally doing millions of rides every single week in, uh, across North America and in Ontario. Um, it's a service that people have become, you know, have loved and uh, there's an expectation uh, around reliability and affordability. And we want to make sure that BC residents who deserve this, who have been waiting a very long time, 
for this. Uh, they are served well by, uh, by ride sharing here. Uh, you said that you don't operate anywhere else that has class four requirement. Do you operate elsewhere that has uh, boundaries and caps on the number of vehicles? Uh, we do not, no. So would that be a no, non-starter if, that, if those are also brought in as regulations in B.C.? Again, we need to look at all the regulations in totality. And, and the most important thing for us is that we're bringing this really high level of service that people have come to expect from Lyft. But the thing that we're really most excited about, I mean, obviously getting people from point A to point B is important. But the investment in the community is really where Lyft has always differentiated itself, the way that it treats people, the way that we invest in social uh, impact programs, and as well as the environmental footprint. I'm not sure if you are aware of this or not, but Lyft is actually carbon neutral. We're one of the largest purchasers of carbon offsets. Uh, in the entire world. And so, again, not just solving congestion problems, but and getting people from point A to point B, but really partnering with the cities that we operate in to make them better places to live in. All right, Aaron, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. Aaron Zifkin, Managing Director for Lyft in Canada. A survey of more than 2,000 Canadians found that 85% had not gone off the grid, spent more than one week offline in the past year. That might not surprise you too much, but you might be surprised to know that only one in five had disconnected for an eight hour period, eight consecutive hours. And this was a survey done by the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. And uh, some of other key findings, boomers are embracing their smartphones. Uh, A lot of Canadians, three quarters of those questioned, surf the internet while watching TV. You can't do one or the other. You have to do both. And uh, the list goes on and on. So let's take a look at some of the other findings. And joining me on the line is Spencer Callahan, Communications Manager with CIRA. Spencer, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me. What else stuck out to, to you as far as, I think, going offline for an entire week, going off the, the grid for an entire week, people might say, yeah, that, that, that doesn't surprise me that people aren't doing that. But what did surprise you about these findings? Um, I guess uh, it's funny, the, uh, the bathroom uh, uh, stat, which is the one that uh, is uh, you know, drawing a lot of interest, it's one of those ones where I think that uh, there's there's the amount of people who answered positively and then there's the amount of people who lied um, <laughs> because uh, I was actually surprised that number was so low. And I was just talking to your producer before uh, before coming on the air and he, and he brought up a really great point of saying, like, if you're a parent, when you're in the bathroom, that's probably one of the only times you have peace and quiet to do anything. So um, it's uh, it's one of those things where uh, sometimes you just have to uh, find some quiet where you can. Um, I think. For us, you know, we try to do these reports because we're, you know, obviously we, uh, you know, we're dedicated to helping uh, grow and and support the Internet in Canada. And we really wanted to find out more about, you know, what Canadians are doing, how it's impacting their lives. And like we know that it's such a big impact these days. And uh, my my biggest uh, I think that the 55 plus number was really interesting that shows that uh, the baby boomer generation are really embracing the Internet. I know my parents are probably have more connected devices in their house than I do. And so uh, it's really interesting to see how that's impacting the lives of, of all generations of Canadians. And because it was a big jump looking, was it 24% in 2015, so not that long ago, to 57% now? Yeah, it's a huge jump in just four years. And I think that, you know, I think part of that might be uh, maybe maybe boomers as they're starting to retire, maybe they have more leisure time, so they're spending more time on the internet, I, I don't know. Um, I know, you know, my parents personally, they use the Internet a lot for booking vacations and travel and all this kind of stuff. So the way that the Internet has really impacted virtually every aspect of our lives means that it doesn't really matter 
what walk of life you're in or, or where you're from, it's going to impact what you do and how you do it. And as we saw by some of our some of our stats, you know, like, uh, you know, 22 percent are now finding jobs online, 10 percent found their spouse online, 16 uh, percent found a home online. So these things are now starting to, to, to basically go into every aspect of our lives. I actually thought those numbers were a bit low, especially the jobs number, because you would think with people looking for work, you hear so many ads for online websites and such that are job sites. I thought 22% actually sounded a bit low. It, it felt a bit low to me as well. I think the, the confusion might have been people saying that they uh, only, like the, 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 the entirety of the job search took place 100% online. So in mm. other words, from finding the job through to interview and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's probably, I think if you ask someone, you know, uh, did you use the internet at any point in your job search? I mean, I think the answer to that would probably be close to, you know, 90%. I think that that is an impact, uh, a big impact in job searching. Indeed. Uh, the It also took a look at the fastest speed because people always want faster speeds. Uh, New Brunswick, I was surprised to learn, used to be the fastest, but uh, BC and Alberta have bumped New Brunswick out of top spot. Yeah, New Brunswick lost its crown, which uh, I guess, the, I don't know if they're, uh, they'll be uh, rearing to try to get it back next year. But um, yeah, it was really interesting to see that New Brunswick had lost, its, it lost the, the title. I think you know, one of the traditional reasons why New Brunswick has always been so strong is because um, there was a lot of support in New Brunswick through the through various initiatives through the government to connect the entire province. And also, it's a small province with a population that is very much connected to, to sort of two major arteries that uh, makes it easy to easy to connect. Um, but I think the growth you're seeing in BC and Alberta is just based pure. You know, if I were to speculate, it would be based just mainly on on the economy, right? I mean, you have two strong economies. Um, and as those economies grow, uh, people with, uh, are able to afford faster and faster speeds, and then developers start building out fiber networks to meet the demand. So I think that's why you're seeing that uh, uh, BC and Alberta sort of surpassing, uh, surpassing uh, New Brunswick in that regard. It also took a look at download speeds, and perhaps not surprising, even though we've been hearing promises about having internet, uh, having connectivity uh, available to more rural areas, but the download speeds, if you're in an urban area, hugely uh, outpacing rural homes. Yeah, and that's something that we are monitoring really closely here at CIRA. Um, The federal government recently announced um, a rural broadband uh, plan to try to address that gap, and I think that that is a major uh, concern because, you know, as we know, uh, the Internet is a central part to virtually everything we do, as we've been talking about this whole time. But, but one of the great sort of benefits of the Internet is it really is allowing these smaller rural communities to actually experience growth and prosperity without having, like, it used to be, you know, if, if, if a factory or a mine shut down in your town, um, that was pretty much it. Like the, some of the smaller towns w- wouldn't have many other options. But the Internet is actually opening up a lot of options for these smaller towns. Actually, New Brunswick's a really great example. New Brunswick, one of the reasons why New Brunswick has such fast Internet speeds is because they made a concerted effort a few years back to try to attract a lot of international call, international and national call centers to New Brunswick. And now they do a lot of technical support, uh, partially because they're uh, pretty much a fluently bilingual province. And so that's a great example of how they were able to wire their economy, have a really strong internet backbone, and lure some really great high-tech jobs to that province. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that that wealth and prosperity and that opportunity is spread across to everyone, including people in rural communities. Uh, You also uh, took a look at buying online, because certainly there's been a big shift with more people purchasing things online. Uh, I found it interesting that it found Canadians like to buy from Canadian retailers. 
Yeah, and I mean, that's something, obviously, we're quite biased about that, um, as we are the organization that manages the .ca domain name. Um, but that's data that we see come out all the time. I mean, um, generally speaking, you know, when you're shopping online, a major element of online shopping is trust, right? Because I think that even though online shopping isn't new anymore, um, the fact that you're not physically in the store, physically handing over the money, physically grabbing the goods and putting them in your car, um, there's an element of trust that needs to be built there. And so what we're seeing is that Canadians overwhelmingly trust other Canadians more than, than anyone else. So uh, if you're doing business within Canada, there's a trust factor there that they appreciate. They know that the, that the prices will be in Canadian dollars. They know that shipping is not going to be a big pain. They know there won't be duties and taxes. They know that the organization understands the Canadian economy. So, you know, we, we see that a lot with our .ca domain name. I mean, when Canadians see a .ca domain name, they instantly recognize that that's a Canadian business, which really helps with that trust factor. So we see that a lot uh, throughout a lot of the e-commerce stats that not only we gather, but also other organizations gather is that Canadians really prefer to buy uh, from other Canadians. And just to circle back and touch on the one that you mentioned right off the top, because it is something that we've been putting the call out to people and getting a lot of response on this. 46% of Canadians admit that they use their mobile device in the bathroom. But then it also says more than that, we're too embarrassed to say. So was there a box they could tick to say I'm too embarrassed to, to say whether I do this or not? No, no. To be honest, that was just me editorializing. Um, <laughs> that's not. Don't take that as a scientific data point. No, that was just me editorializing in that in that comment. But I mean, I think that uh, it it just goes to show that. Uh, I mean, I think a forty six percent is a pretty big number, uh, uh, even uh, even if you just take it at its face value. But I think that there's probably a lot of people out there who do it and probably just don't want to admit to it. But I mean, uh, you know, I think it just goes to show how ubiquitous the internet has become in our lives. Yeah, exactly. Love it or hate it. It's it's everywhere. Uh, we will exactly. leave it there. Spencer, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks a lot. That is Spencer Callahan, Communications Demani- uh, Manager with CIRA, and that is the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. Well, when it was announced that red light cameras would be coming to several intersections in BC, there was a lot of backlash. A lot of people saying if it looks like photo radar and it acts like photo radar, then it is, in fact, photo radar. But some new research shows that perhaps public opinion is shifting a little bit when it comes to automated speed enforcement in the province. Uh, this research done by Research Co. and the president of Research Co., Mario Canseco, uh, joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about the findings. Mario, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. So you asked about 800 people last month uh, some questions about this. What did you find about uh, our attitude when it comes to uh, speed enforcement and cameras at intersections? Well, uh, there's definitely a high level of support for all types of speed enforcement. uh, But one of them that I wanted to focus into is what they call speed on green cameras, which is essentially what the uh, BC government wants to do now. This is having the red light cameras that you have at specific intersections also being used to capture vehicles that are speeding through. And we see 68% of BC residents who believe that this is a good idea and actually support it. Uh, It's down two points from when I asked back in August 2018 when this was still in its infancy. So there's really not a lot of movement on this matter. And there's definitely a high number of residents who believe that this is the right way to go. And it also, uh, you've written about this today, as well as uh, the survey results. Uh, You wrote about this in Business in Vancouver. Uh, You talked a little bit about one of the intersections in particular, and that uh, one is uh, at uh, the one at uh, Granville and King Edward. And you actually witnessed a crash there. 
I did. That was the first crash that I witnessed uh, as a driver in Canada. I didn't really start driving until uh, 2002. And what happened was somebody was definitely speeding through. Somebody was trying to turn left into King Edward coming uh, northbound on Granville, and they just crashed into each other. It, it wasn't uh, bad as far as any injuries or, or anything, but I was completely new to driving, and it, I didn't know what type of thing you had to do. I, I stayed there, talked to some of the uh, a, a police when they came in, and it, it stuck with me. So whenever I drive there, I'm, I'm extra careful because I know what can happen there. And uh, certainly not the only one. Uh, people have uh, witnessed a lot of crashes. The, the, and that's uh, how the government came up with the, the specific intersections that, where they're going to put these cameras. Uh, did you get into at all how people feel about at what point the camera will take a picture and dock you for speeding? Well, this is one of the issues uh, that really comes across when you look at some other types of enforcement. You know, there's one that has been used in other places, uh, which is essentially the opportunity to uh, have a camera that, it, that uh, takes a specific picture at a, at a starting point and then takes another picture at the end, and then it calculates the average speed, and then they can find you for that. That was pretty tricky because you could be in a situation where you had to go faster because you had to swerve or you had to avoid running into somebody or an animal that was on the road. Uh, that one wasn't particularly good with residents. Only 51% believe that's the right way to go. Uh, but I think part of the situation is... It's all in the way in which the government essentially advertises where this is going to be happening. And in that sense, I think this is definitely clearer than the photo radar that we had in the late 1990s. Uh, There is more uh, emphasis on the government to say when this happens, we're going to let you know where the cameras are. And we're not going to be doing some of the things that made photo radar very controversial, which was essentially having an unmarked police car and a very low threshold for giving you a notice or a fine. Uh, you also looked at this as far as uh, the respondents and the answers from people who drive and people who don't drive, and those were uh, understandably different. Yeah, well, if you don't drive, you definitely love this idea. 75% of residents say this is uh, something that they would like to see. But we also looked into people who drive uh, once or twice a week, and 59% of them said that they welcome the speed on green cameras. 61% of those who drive three or four times a week and also 58% of those who drive five times a week. So essentially you have roughly three out of five drivers uh, who say this is a good idea. I think this is something that could be helpful. Uh, Usually you get, whenever I do research related to uh, traffic, you you get into this battle between those who have a bike and are complaining about the drivers, those who drive and complain about the bikers, those who walk and complain about everybody. Uh, In this particular scenario, I think there's also residents who drive a car who are saying maybe this is the right course of action and we could stop some of these accidents that have uh, ICBC very concerned. And what about age? Did it did it vary depending on the age of the person you were asking? Yeah, there's a little bit of a shift there because we do see that uh, when it comes to the speed on green cameras, uh, the highest level of support is for residents who are age 55 and over at 76%. It drops a little bit for Generation X and it drops to 61% with millennials. So you still had a majority of all three groups saying that they believe this is the right course of action. And do you think it will shift more, or, or as people perhaps embrace this a little bit more and realize it's not those uh, ghost-looking vans on the side of the roads and highways that was photo radar that, that people really didn't like, uh, that it will become more accepted? I think this is definitely 
something that the government needs to do. Uh, we don't see a situation like we see with some other policy proposals where those who voted for the party that is in power are more likely to be supportive. We see 76% of those who voted for the Greens, 71% of those who voted for the NDP, and 67% of those who voted for the Liberals believing that this is the right course of action. Now, if the government doesn't do this the way it was advertised, if we start to see a situation that resembles the photo radar of the 1990s, then the numbers could shift. But right now, it's a good idea. People believe that this is the right course of action. And whether this changes over time depends uh, in, in a large part in the way the government rolls it out. And and I don't know if this looked at it or this particular survey looked at it, but do you see a divide or a split in support of a red light camera as opposed to support of the green light speed camera? Yeah, there's a little bit of a, of a shift there because I think we, we really got used to the red light cameras. They never really went out of vogue. We still get some of those notices in the mail when we do something like that. Uh, I think the fact that you're now using them to do something that they weren't intended to do uh, makes some of the residents uneasy. And I think that's why we have that level of disapproval. That's at 25 percent. It's significantly lower than what we see as far as support. But there are some residents who believe that it's an intrusion in their own uh, privacy and they don't want to see the cameras being used in this fashion. But it's still a minority when you compare it to the rest of the province. Right. And, and likely a part of that is also if you're going with the flow of traffic, but you're going 10K over and hopefully they're not going to be dinging people at 10K if that's the scenario. But if you're in in that uh, scenario, you would hope that not everybody's getting a ticket. Well, absolutely. I think this is one of the issues that made photo radar uh, so unpopular when it was at its uh, later stages. And this is one of the reasons why the Gordon Campbell government took it off uh, the main of the uh, became the new government of uh, BC back in 2001. Uh, the notion of, of having a threshold that is pretty low, I mean, there might be a situation where you're going a little bit higher. Uh, the government right now hasn't announced what the threshold is going to be, uh, but they know full well that the two things that made photo radar very, very unpopular was the threshold and the unmarked uh, vehicle. So they've dealt with one. They've said that we're not going to be having unmarked vehicles and people will know exactly uh, when they are going to get caught on camera. Uh, but we still have to figure out the second one because they haven't said exactly what the threshold will be. Indeed. Uh, still waiting for those details. Uh, Mario, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Mario Canseco, he is the president of Research Co.